Father, we thank you that you give us such great uh, opportunities today in this world, even though there's a lot of pressure and anti-Christianity going on, and opposition increases daily, we have such wonderful things like the work that uh, Institute for Creation Research has done and Answers in Genesis and numerous other creation groups, but this uh, Creation Museum is such a fantastic thing, and, and there's so many online resources people ought to check out. We're just thankful we have those opportunities to go on trips like this Grand Canyon trip to study uh, Earth's history, and as Job said, to let the stones teach us and to learn from creation what has happened and to come to understand it in a biblical framework. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might gain a greater understanding of uh, who you are, how you exist as a triune God and the deity of God, the Holy Spirit, and that as we study these things, it might strengthen our faith and trust in your word as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here we go. This is uh, one of the other interesting rapids. The guy in the camo hat up about three people in front is Todd Atwood. He's the pastor of Grace Bible Church in Rockwall. He's married to the woman who's in the uh, burgundy-colored raincoat. That's his wife, Carrie. She's David Roseland's sister. And David and Todd went through Dallas Seminary together. I think that was the day we got off. Isn't that the day we went up just after this or just before this and went up and looked at those Indian ruins? And it was 107 or 110 degrees. So that water, that 50-degree water felt uh, felt uh, really good. Okay. That just uh, just the kind of fun that you can have. Even if you're a Christian, you can have fun. And here's one of our own. There's Bill Wright. Bill Wright looking ripe at the end of the trip. We all were freshly scrubbed and clean at the beginning, but after about a week with nothing but splash baths, we were all kind of uh, grungy looking. Nobody changed clothes in a while. So this was our last camp getting ready to get on the uh, on the rafts for our last two miles before we had the helicopter pick us up. So, okay, we're in 1 Peter, still in 1 Peter 1.3, still talking about the Trinity. Oh, one other thing I want to cover. I mentioned this on on Tuesday night, and I probably need to go back over it again next Tuesday night to get some continuity, but I mentioned this article that was in the Houston Chronicle on Tuesday morning that was about a homosexual activist who had gone to uh, Biola, and he, he, this guy's mission is to try to talk to Christian leaders and get them to at least reconsider some levels of their opposition to homosexual marriage. And sadly, he's going to have an impact. I don't think he had an impact in uh, 
uh, at, at Biola. I doubt that he did, but there's always the, the hope that they did something. And, of course, the liberal writers for, for the uh, national media, in order to get front-page coverage, have to make it sound like, like something's happening. Uh, he also went to talk to the focus on the family people. I don't think he got anywhere there. They've been pretty uh, firm in their opposition and their stand on on the scripture. But one of the things that came out in that article that I mentioned the other day was that um, that that he says that he got the faculty group that he talked to to admit that Sodom was not judged for sodomy for homosexuality. That Sodom was judged because they were greedy and because they were arrogant. Now, I want you to turn to, there's one passage that at first blush makes it sound that way, and I want you to turn there because this may come up, and you need to know how to handle the scripture on this. Uh, this is Ezekiel chapter 16, and I want you to look at verse 49. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. And you might want to underline this so that you can find it. And what I like to do in my Bible is when there are particular topics on the page, I like to write something down in the top margin up there so that when I'm thumbing through, I can find it. So you might want to jot down something about about Sodom in the top margin so you can find this again. Uh, it's sort of uh, locked away down here. And God is sta- talking here in verse 49 and says, Look, this was the iniquity of <coughs> of your sister Sodom. Now, if you look at that without paying attention to the context, you think he's talking about literal Sodom. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. See, that's where they get the idea she's greedy, she's got abundance, she's prosperous, and she just doesn't care about the poor, the poor, and the poor. There's no social justice Social justice is always a key word for socialism and communism. Always be aware of that. Uh, Anybody who loves social justice does not fundamentally understand or like the American Constitution. So, anyhow, uh, so that's where they go with this. And in verse 50, it says, They were haughty and committed abomination before me, therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Abomination, if you do a word study on it, is just a broad word that just about refers to any sin that God detests, which is all sin. So it, it, it can be idolatry, it can be arrogance, it can be homosexuality, it can be greed, lust, it can be a, a host of different things that are considered an abomination. Now, what is the most significant rule in Bible study? Anybody want to say? Context, just like real estate, location, location, location. It's the same principle, context. Let's go back just a few verses to verse 46. Let's look at 45. That's usually where, at least that's where my Bible kind of divides things. God is speaking and says, Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. You're your mother's daughter. He's indicting the southern kingdom of Judah. This is Ezekiel, remember. Ezekiel's a prophet who's already in the exile, already in Babylon. You're your mother's daughter. He's talking about Judah, loathing husband and children. You're the sister of your sisters. Who is the sister of the sisters? Judah. Judah. He's not talking about Sodom here. He's talking about Judah. 
the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria. Who's the elder sister? Samaria. Keep that in mind. He's talking to Judah. Your older sister is Samaria who dwells with her daughters to the north of you and your younger sister who dwells to the south of you. He's really talking to Jerusalem here. Your younger sister who dwells to the south of you is Sodom and her daughters. Who dwells to the south of Jerusalem? Sodom certainly doesn't at this time. Sodom's been wiped out. This is this is about 590. Sodom's been wiped out for um, 1,500 years. So Sodom is, there's nothing there. So it's not talking about literal Sodom. Talking about Judah. Judah dwells south of Jerusalem. You did not walk in their ways nor act according to their abomination, but as if they were too little, you became more corrupt than they, that is your Judea, Judah and, and uh, her daughters. You became more corrupt than they in all their ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom. Who's your sister Sodom? Judah. Neither your sister, or it could be uh, earlier. It said in verse, uh, what was that? Verse forty-six. Your elder sister could be your elder sister. The one, no, the, the younger sister dwells to the south of you, Sodom. So it's very clear there that it's Judah is the younger sister to the south. Neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Who's that? Not literal Sodom. Throughout the Bible. God, uh, the scriptures will metaphorically use and let you know it's using the name of Sodom, assigning it to people who are following in a similar path. Now, we all agree that the root of every sin, whether it's homosexuality or whether it is blasphemy or whether it is implacability or bitterness or gossip or slander, the root of every single sin is haughtiness, it's arrogance, it's pride. So that's not a, a big deal to say, well, their real problem was pride. Everybody's real problem is pride. So she and her daughter had pride. So this is not talking about literal Sodom in, this, in these verses. It's talking about how Judah is following in the sins, same sins as Sodom, including homosexuality. Very much was present in uh, Judah prior to the destruction of the temple uh, in in. Uh, 586 B.C. So that, uh, by taking a verse out of context and not looking at its context, you can come up and, and come up with a completely wrong interpretation of what that verse is talking about and wrong application to today. Okay, we're in First Peter. We've been looking at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I started this off by asking the question, why in the world does Peter emphasize God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that caused me to go back and look at Old Testament passages to see how God is referred to as Father. And it's not very often, but when about 90% of the time that we find it in the Old Testament, it's emphasizing God as the Father of Israel. But he is mentioned in a couple of passages in relation to uh, to his role within the Trinity as as God the Father. From there, I looked at the Son because if there if God is called a Father, that implies a Son. 
It implies offspring, as it were. The term father does. So if there's a father, there's a son. Not that the son is the offspring of God, but it is a related to the uh, what theologians call the economic or the functional relationship of the son to the father. So you have God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes into play later on, and it's already been referenced once, as we'll see in verse 2, referencing, uh, referencing God the Father and referencing the Holy Spirit. They're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So you have a triune reference there in verse 3. So we looked at God the Father. We looked at this diagram because it's a historical diagram for understanding the Trinity, that you have God who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons. It's not modalism. Modalism was an early church heresy, an attempt to explain the Trinity. And it was the idea that God appeared in these three modes, not at the same time. So for a while he appears as the father, he puts on the father mask. Then for a while he appears as the son, he puts on the son mask. And then for a while he appears as the Holy Spirit puts on the Holy Spirit mask. But it's basically one person, one nature. He just shows up in different uh, modes. So that's called modalism. So in this diagram, we're saying that God is the Son, is the Father, and is the Holy Spirit, but the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They are three distinct persons with one essence. And we saw a study of the Old Testament that there's an indication of plurality in the Godhead in the Old Testament, not just the name Elohim, but there are passages that reference the Father, Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord. There are passages that reference the Messiah, the servant, who is called the Son, and passages that reference the Messiah. And in Isaiah, there are several passages that mention all three in the same verse. Then we looked at plurality in the Godhead in the New Testament. Now, we've looked at the Father, we've looked at the Son, we've looked at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and now I want to look at the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And this is from our doctrinal statement, which is a traditional doctrinal statement. This represents traditional historical biblical Christianity since the time of the what they refer to as the ecumenical councils. In this context, ecumenical is not a bad word. There was only one visible church until uh, the split that occurred from east and west, which was around the uh, 10th century A.D. So everybody agreed in these original councils, the Council of Nicaea, Council of Ephesus, Council of Constantinople, and Council of Chalcedon. So we believe that the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal and co-infinite with the Father and the Son. He has all the same attributes as Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you read in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is given the attributes of God and is called God, and things that are said that God did in the Old Testament are ascribed to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, that tells us that he is uh, one with God. He is full deity. 
as God. He possesses the same divine attributes as the Father and the Son. And then we'll just skip down to what I underlined here, that the Spirit is the agent of regeneration, sanctification, and comfort to those who believe in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is a person just as the Father and the Son are persons. He's not an impersonal force. Now, a couple of key passages that talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in equality are Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, which is part of what is called the Great Commission, where Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them. It's a, a participle of means. By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So they are treated grammatically as three equal persons. The concept of in the name of something, we believe in the name of Jesus, that in uh, Jewish thought was a reference to their essence, who they are. And because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have the same essence, they have the same authority, and they are equal in person. Then 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is another passage that mentions all three. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that would be the Father, and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This is uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, closing benediction uh, to the Corinthians at the end of 2 Corinthians. So as we look at the Holy Spirit in the New Testament... One of the first things we ought to note is that God the Holy Spirit is spoken of as God and is treated equally with the other members of the Godhead. He is treated as equal to the Father and as equal to the Son. And he's equated with God in several New Testament references. Now here we have an interesting passage. Remember we did this with with Jesus where we pointed out that that there are quotes in the New Testament from the Old Testament, where the Old Testament passage is talking about God or the Lord, Yahweh doing something. And in the New Testament, that verse is quoted, but it is said that it was Jesus who did this. Okay, so by quoting it, applying it to Jesus in the New Testament is showing that Jesus was treated as as fully divine and equal to God of the Old Testament. Same thing happens with God the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 6 is that wonderful passage. Y'all ought to remember remember it where Isaiah goes to heaven and he falls down before the throne of God. And you have the the, uh, cherubim who are flying around uh, the throne of God and... um, uh, Isaiah falls down and says, Woe is me, O man of unclean lips. And one of the, I think it's seraphim, I said cherubim, but seraphim, flies out to him with a burning coal, touches his lips, which is a picture of purification or cleansing of sin. And uh, then Isaiah worships the Lord, and there's the, the angel saying, Holy, holy, etc. And in Isaiah 6, 9, he, we read in Isaiah, and he... If you look at verse 5, it's the voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh. He, the Lord, uh, said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. In Acts 28.25, the Apostle Paul uh, says this, Uh, We read uh, Luke writing, So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah. Now, who is speaking in Isaiah 6-9? God, the Lord. 
Who does Paul ascribe it to? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. So you see that the passage on the left, uh, the part of Isaiah 6-9 here, is identical to what's in, uh, what is in Acts 28-26, and together that means that uh, that Paul is ascribing uh, the voice there to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, a second thing that indicates that the Holy Spirit is fully divine is that the Bible shows that lying to the Holy Spirit is just as naughty as lying to God. It's blasphemy. And when we have that great instance in uh, Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira, I always joke with this with my charismatic friends that these were the first people slain in the Spirit. And this is a situation where Ananias had observed that Barnabas had very correctly, very rightly and very humbly sold some property, and he gave it all to the church. He was, he was wealthy, he had land, and he wanted to sell it and give it all to the church so that they would have the finances necessary to carry out their mission. And so Ananias, who must have been uh, wealthy, or at least he was a property owner, sold his property, but he decided to keep something back. Now, there was nothing wrong with keeping it back. This isn't a passage teaching that you ought to go sell all your stuff and give it all to the church. This is a passage saying that, that don't lie about how much you're giving. And that's what, what Ananias did was he lied about it. He said, I sold my property. I'm giving it all to the church. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Now, some people take that passage to mean Satan filled his heart and he was demon-possessed, but that's not the focus of the passage. Satan is the one who's performing the action of the verb. He is filling the heart of Ananias with a desire to sin. He's tempted him externally to sin. This is demonic influence. And uh, Ananias yields to that, gives control to his sin nature, and he lies and he keeps back part of the price of the land for himself. Now, what's wrong is that he's lying about it, not that he's keeping something back for himself. And so Peter uh, indicts him, confronts him on this, and when he does this in verse 5, Ananias heard these words, fell down, breathed his last, so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Now, as we studied this in Acts, we saw the reason for this is the church is just a little baby organism at this point, and God is protecting that little baby from being given over to sin and arrogance at the very beginning. So what you do to protect a little infant, you don't do to protect necessarily to protect a two- and three-year-old. And so this just is, again, a sign that God is protecting the early church. But what he did in that early stage was not necessary once the church had gotten to the walking, talking, moving around stage where it reached a level of spiritual maturity. So lying to the Spirit is the same as lying to God in Acts 5, and the blasphemy uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit against the Holy Spirit is the same as blasphemy to God. And we studied this very recently in our study on Matthew 12, where we saw that the, the Pharisees ascribed Jesus' power to Beelzebul, which was just an epithet they had for, for Satan. And when Jesus casts the uh, demon out of this one uh, one man, 
They said, you did this by not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. So he is, they're ascribing to Jesus the, the power of Satan, and they're basically saying that the power of the Holy Spirit is the power of Satan. So that was speaking ill of God the Holy Spirit. It was reviling God the Holy Spirit, and that brought a punishment that Jesus identified as the uh, unforgivable sin. And we saw that this is a unique sin in history. It's unique to the nation Israel, and it was unique to that time period because it's related to claiming that Jesus isn't the Messiah and that he gets his power from Satan. It is not the sin of unbelief. It is the sin of ascribing to uh, Jesus the power of God the Holy Spirit, and it was sort of the ultimate rejection There have been points here, points there, going through the early stage of Matthew where the opposition to Jesus increased and increased and increased, but this is where it reached reached its apex and its climax, and this is the major turning point in Jesus' ministry, and he never again is going to offer the kingdom to, uh, to Israel. This is when the leaders make their final decision, and there is a point of no return among leaders of a nation where they reject God, reject truth over and over and over again until it reaches a point where there's not going to be any turning back and God is going to lower the boom in divine discipline. And that's what Jesus was announcing, that because of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the nation would be executed, the death penalty. That was the penalty under the Mosaic law for blasphemy. The nation had blasphemed against God, and so God was going to execute the nation, and that execution would take place on Tisha B'Av, which is roughly the end, it floats around according to the Jewish calendar, roughly the end of July, beginning of August in um, AD 70. And so this was the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Because of their arrogant rejection of Jesus as Messiah and ascribing his power to Satan. So uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit got the same penalty as blasphemy against God, indicating that the Holy Spirit is fully divine. Okay, so those were just several examples of where uh, God the Holy Spirit is treated in the Scripture as having the same authority, the same power as, as God. He's equated with God in all of these passages. Secondly, we see in the Scripture that the Holy Spirit has the same attributes of God. There are attributes that are seen in God the, God the Holy Spirit that are unique to deity. Creatures do not have these Attributes, And, of course, the first three attributes that should come to your mind are the three omnibrothers, omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. And that's what's ascribed to God the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12, we have a passage that indicates that God the Holy Spirit has an exhaustive knowledge of God the Father. Now, if to have an exhaustive knowledge of anything means you're, you, you have omniscience. But to have an exhaustive knowledge of an infinite God means you truly have an infinite knowledge. You have, you know everything that can possibly be known about God. So we read in 1 Corinthians 2.10, but God had revealed the, has revealed them to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in them, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. 
So he knows God. That's omniscient. So clearly God the Holy Spirit is omniscient. In Psalm 139, verse 7, we see a reference to God the Holy Spirit's omnipresence. Psalm 139, 7, David says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? These are rhetorical questions bringing out the fact that there's there's nowhere that David can flee where he would escape the presence of God the Holy Spirit. He is everywhere. So all of this is ascribed to God the Holy Spirit. Another thing that is ascribed to God the Holy Spirit is related to his omnipotence, and there are three things that are uh, in, that indicate the omnipotence of God the Holy Spirit. The first is seen with reference to the doctrine of regeneration. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, which is a central passage on being born again, uh, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, say, Nick, you're never going to get to heaven unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is really confused, and he says, I don't understand this. How can a man go back and be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. So their regeneration is from the Spirit. Titus 3.5 also talks about the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that that indicates that God the Holy Spirit is involved in regeneration. Then we have another passage, since I'm talking about regeneration here, that's in the same context in John 1, 12, and 13. Now, John 1, 12 says that, uh, in John 1, 11 says that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, that is the remnant that accepted him as Messiah, as many as received him, to them gave he the power or the authority to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So receiving Jesus is equivalent to believing his name. That is how a person is saved, by believing in Jesus, not inviting Jesus into their heart, not committing their life to Jesus. Believe does not mean commit. Believe means to accept something as true, to believe that it is true. And you don't need to genuinely believe, truly believe. If you believe, it's genuine. If you didn't believe it, and you're just saying it, it's not saving. You don't believe it. So belief is belief. It doesn't need to be qualified by an adverb. As many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called, uh, to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, those who believe in who he is and what he did, that he was the eternal son of God and he died on the cross for our sins. And they are born not of blood, See, that relates to I'm, I'm the Jewish idea that I'm automatically saved because I am a descendant of Abraham, okay? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It doesn't have to do with me exercising my, uh, my own will coming out of the sin nature, nor of the will of man or mankind. It's not a corporate choice. Ultimately, God is the one who performs the action of regeneration. Now, we believe, but by believing in Jesus, which is an exercise of our will, is not the cause of our regeneration. We're saved through faith. That's not a causal term. Faith is never, ever referred to as the cause of salvation. The Greek is very clear. If it were cause, it would use the Greek preposition dia plus an accusative noun. 
and that means because of. But when dia, the preposition translated through, is used with a genitive, it indicates means, not cause. We're saved through faith. It's the means. The cause of faith is the omnipotence of God and the love of God that is that causes us to be born again. That's what we'll see in 1 Peter 1, 3, because the passage we're studying says, uh, praise to, to God, our, God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through his great mercy has caused us to be born again. He causes us to be born again, but as a result of our expression of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, another example of the power of the Holy Spirit, that it was God the Holy Spirit who enabled uh, Mary, the Virgin Mary, to conceive. He is the one who uh, made that possible for her to give birth. The verb in Greek is ganao, which is sometimes used with another word like palin, ganao. Palin means again. I'm not talking about Sarah Palin. Palin in Greek means again. So uh, palin, ganao means to be born again or is the word that we have in 1 Peter twice, in 1 Peter 1, 3 and verse 23, we have ana, which is a preposition that's uh, prefixed to the root anaganao, which means to be born again. And so God the Holy Spirit is able to make it possible for the Virgin Mary to give birth. Uh, So that indicates his power. And he was involved in uh, creation, Psalm 104, verse 30. Bill, doesn't that sound like a familiar chapter? Let's look at Psalm 104 for just a minute and, uh, and connect a couple of other dots in relation to the trip that we just finished going down the Grand Canyon. Psalm 104, uh, verse 30. Psalm 104 is really a praise psalm to God for his work as creator and sovereign over taking care of the planet. We don't need environmentalist groups to take care of the planet. God can do it very well. Thank you very much. He built into all of the systems of the earth the uh, the, the mechanics to cleanse itself and to perfect itself and to uh, deal with all of the problems that, that develop. There are more uh, fluorohydrocarbons that are thrown into the atmosphere, for example, by a volcano like, like Krakatoa or Mount St. Helens, just one volcano like that throws more garbage and pollution and carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere than mankind has thrown into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution began. And so nature, God's creation, pollutes itself a thousand times more, 10,000 times more than man can ever dream, that the environmentalist in his worst nightmare can't imagine man polluting the earth just a a, a one-thousandth, a millionth of what one or two volcanoes will do. So... uh, Psalm 104 is a great psalm to reflect upon God's sovereign control. But if you look at verses, for example, in verse 5, you who laid the foundations of the earth. God is the one who laid the foundation of the earth. I believe the foundations were laid in Genesis 1-1. God created 
Ha'aretz v'hashemayim, the heavens and the earth. And uh, and that's when the foundations were laid. And then from that point, he develops it. But that foundation is laid at that particular point, and all of the angels, the sons of God, according to Job uh, 47, shout for joy. So he lays the foundation. And then we read, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. This is not a reference to that primordial uh water that covered the face of the earth in Genesis 1, 3, this, or 1, 2, this is a depiction, 1, 2, and 3, because it's there at the beginning of the first day before God separated the waters from the dry land. This is the uh, water that covered the mountains. When does that take place? That takes place with the flood. That's not what took place then, because you might have had some hills, a few little hills and valleys but the mountains are formed through the tectonic upheavals that occur as a result of the Noahic flood. When the fountains of the deep burst forth, that's just one sign of the evidence of those tectonic shifts. So uh, the psalmist here praise, praises God, you covered it, that is the earth with the deep as with a garment. That's referring to the Noahic flood. The water stood above the mountains, that's what... It's stated in Genesis chapter uh, 7 that the waters covered all of the mountains. That's before you had the major tectonic upheavals that lifted up the Himalayans and the Rockies and the other uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and the other uh, major mountain ranges in the earth. These came later. They're like the aftershocks from the flood. But prior to the flood, the uh, the, the mountains weren't that high. Uh, that comes as a result of these tectonic shifts that occurred uh, during and following the flood. It says, at your rebuke they fled. When the flood was over with, God dried up the earth. And at the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains and they went down into the valleys. That's the drainage of the, of the floodwaters. To the place which you founded for them, you have set a boundary that they may not pass over. In other words, the waters have gone into their designated locations and they're not going to come out and flood the earth again. That's the promise in the Noahic covenant that God will not destroy the earth by water again. You've set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. And so this is the drainage, and I think this is what happened is you had these tectonic shifts and upheavals that occurred after the flood over probably the next uh, couple of hundred years as a result of all this tectonic activity that caused these uplifts to occur, and then the water that was still there uh, drained off. You have evidence, for example, that there were probably three or four enormous lakes, much, much larger than the Great Lakes, that covered much of northern, what well, we would call northern Arizona, Colorado, some New Mexico, and on up to Utah, all the way up uh, into uh, uh, Idaho and uh, areas west of the Rockies. And that was there for some time after the flood until the natural dams that held those waters back broke. And then you probably had a series of, uh, of dam breakages that occurred with those different lakes and sort of like dominoes falling, then all that water began to rush out 
towards the Pacific, down towards the Sea of Cortez, and that's what formed the Grand Canyon in just a matter of probably a a few months as those and and the result was all those different canyons systems that we see going from um, going from the Grand Canyon on up to uh, Zion National Park up in Utah and some of the other canyons and Canyonlands National Park and those were all formed as, as a result of that catastrophe. Anyway, since we were in Psalm 104, I just thought we'd take that little side trip. Psalm 104. 30, God the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. So he's attributed omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience by various passages in both Old and New Testament. Again, if the Holy Spirit is given the attributes of God, and if the Holy Spirit is equated with God in numerous passages, then our only conclusion is that God the Holy Spirit must be divine. Now let's move on to another another point, and that is that God the Holy Spirit is identified as being equivalent to God the Son in passages such as uh, John fourteen sixteen. He is called another helper or another comforter, depending on your translation. And Jesus says, I will pray the Father. So we have the Son praying to the Father that he will give you, talking to the disciples, another helper. And the Greek word, therefore, another is the word alas. There are two different words that mean another in Greek. There's alas and heteros. Now, heteros is a word that we use when we talk. It's not very popular today, according to the news media. They're more focused on the word homo. Heteros means different, uh, it means uh, another of a different kind. Like you, when you have heterosexuality, you have male and female. It, when you have homosexuality, that's talking about the same thing. Well, alas is a word that describes uh, another of the same kind, whereas heteros identifies another of a different kind. So here, Jesus is praying that God will send another encourager of the same kind. The same kind is who? The same kind is him. So that is, he's divine, the spirit, the uh, Holy Spirit, the helper, the encourager is divine. So that's another indicator that God, the Holy Spirit, is divine. Another indication of his deity is that he's treated as a distinct person. And now a person has intellect and will. He can a, a person can think, and a person makes choices. A person is capable of having relationship. So what you have is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have an eternal relationship uh, that that is not dependent on any creature. Therefore, God is what they call independent. Independent. He is not dependent upon his creatures for anything. Unlike Allah and unlike the Mormon gods who are dependent upon their creation for something, God is independent and self-sufficient, and he is not dependent on his creatures for anything. He doesn't have to have creatures in order to have an object for love. God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit loves God the Father, God the Son, 
And so there's no need for them to have creatures in order to have an object for their love or someone to love them. So God the Holy Spirit is described as a person with intellect and will. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2.10, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yet the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? For no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows something. He has intellect. So that's important. And we look at passages like Romans 8.27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The Spirit is has mind, has intellect. And the word here in the Greek that is used indicates thought process, intellection, the ability to reason, the ability to think through uh, issues and problems doing analysis and logic. So the spirit has the ability to uh, perform intellectual activity. The Holy Spirit is also uh, able to be rejected. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is an anthropopathism, but it helps us to understand that the Holy Spirit can be rejected by human beings who do not want to obey him. I do not believe God has emotion like man does. Because emotion is a responder, and God is uh, eternally present to all of his knowledge all of the time. Therefore, when you have things like God is angry, he would always be angry because he always knows. When God got angry at Israel, how long long did God know that Israel was going to sin like that? Forever and ever and ever. So if God always knew that, then God was always angry about it. We have a real problem trying to explain uh, emotion with God. Emotion is much better understood as something God built into the creature. doesn't mean emotion is sinful. It just means it's creaturely. Uh, the Holy Spirit exercises will, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. He has his own volition. Now, because of the unity of the Trinity, they don't they never operate independent of each other. So, but they do have their own will. And so God the Holy Spirit exercises his own will. The Holy Spirit is also able to pray for us. He not only distributes spiritual gifts as he wills, but he also is able to pray for us. Romans 8.26, he is our intercessor. That's why we don't pray to the Holy Spirit, because he's praying for us. We don't pray to Jesus because he's interceding for us. You don't pray to your intercessor. You pray to God the Father. And this is one, one of the things that, of course, is a problem in Roman Catholic theology because they're always praying to Mary. It's really interesting. We had a young lady... Uh, on the trip, she's married to a guy who's uh, special forces, and she grew up in a richly mystical Italian Catholic family. When she gave her testimony, she said it was like the the opening scene in Godfather Two when they're having the parade down the streets of New York, and they have the big statue of of the Virgin Mary, and everybody's running out and pinning money on the statue. and It was all about, you never heard about Jesus. All you ever heard about was the Virgin Mary. And so that's a huge distraction, she, she said, to um, 
to understanding Jesus and the importance of Jesus because it's all about it's all about Mary. So uh, you enter, you pray to Mary, you do everything to, and you pray to the saints, and you forget about Jesus, and you forget about God the Father. They're, they become almost meaningless in those particular systems. So the Holy Spirit is the one who prays for us. He intercedes for us. And then Acts 8.39 points out that the Holy Spirit also can perform a miracle. These are acts of an individual person. When he took Philip away, took him to Samaria miraculously after he had witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter chapter 8. Another point in emphasizing the uh, uh, personality of the Holy Spirit, in John 16, 13, however, when he, that is the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, the word there for he is the Greek word autu, which is a masculine um, reflexive pronoun there that is used as a pronoun. Now, the word spirit, this is where you get into Greek grammar, the noun spirit refers to what? So the Holy Spirit. But it is the word pneuma, which is a neuter noun. So grammatically, you would refer to a neuter noun with a neuter pronoun. But when you refer to a neuter noun with a masculine pronoun, you're making a point that that which is described by the masculine, by the neuter uh, noun is a person. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Uh, and that word own, again, is the second word, ekinos, here, which is a masculine form uh, referring back to the spirit, which is a neuter noun. So there are n- numerous references like this in the scripture that indicate that God the Holy Spirit is viewed as a person because he's referred to by a masculine pronoun. That doesn't mean he's masculine. Words have gender, people have sex, but people don't, you know, they've destroyed those distinctions in language. Uh, gender doesn't have anything to do with a word's sexual orientation. In German, the word Fräulein is a neuter. Gene, you've been to Germany. You know any neuter Fräuleins? No, not hardly. Mädchens, another word, young woman. No. So it has nothing to do with that. A, a, a finster is, is a, that's a fun word, definster. It's a feminine noun. I've never seen a masculine or a feminine window. I've seen some femin, feminine window dressing, but I've never seen a feminine window. Uh, so, so see, the gender assigned to nouns has nothing to do with any kind of, of sexual orientation. But one of my favorite words coming, coming out of that is uh, uh, defenestration, which means to throw yourself out a window. Okay, in Second Peter one twenty one, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity who oversees revelation. Prophecy did not come by man's will, but God the Holy Spirit moved upon them. And the verb there is is similar to a word that's used to describe the act of wind moving a sailing vessel. It's unseen, but it's felt. That's the role of God the Holy Spirit. He's unseen, but his presence is felt and moves them along. Doesn't matter what they do, it's the wind that is in control and moves them in the correct direction. And this is affirmed by Old Testament passages, such as 2 Samuel 23, 2, 
uh, where David says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. So God the Holy Spirit is the one who is breathing out the word of God through the writers of Scripture. Another passage is in Micah 3.8, where Micah writes, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression. So it's God the Holy Spirit who is providing the inspiration and power for Micah to write his indictment of Judah. Then we have passages like Matthew 22.43, where Jesus says, How does David in the Spirit call him Lord? referring to Psalm 110. But he's saying David did this by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. He's, he's inspiring David in his uh, verbiage. Another passage is in Acts 1.16. Men and brethren, Peter said, he's talking to the uh, other apostles who are in the upper room as they're going to pick someone to succeed Judas. He says, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit who's the agent of revelation. Acts 4.12, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, okay, and there's the passage. So it's indicating that David speaks through God the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, we see that along with these other passages on the Trinity, uh, 1 Peter 1.2 is a critical passage on the Trinity mentioning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as distinct entities. And then uh, from this, we're going to get into uh, a distinction from God the, uh, God the Son and God the Father here in verse 3. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy. So who have we seen so far? God the Father and God the Son. And then there's an allusion to the Holy Spirit because God the Father has begotten us again to a living hope. We'll look at the doctrine of regeneration next time, but the agent of regeneration is God the Holy Spirit. So in verse 3, we have the specific and overt mention of the Father and the Son, and then an allusion to the Holy Spirit by way of his activity in regeneration. God the Father is the uh, one who ultimately causes regeneration, but it is God the Holy Spirit who is the agent of regeneration. And so God the Father is the one who has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we'll come back next time and begin with our understanding of regeneration, very important doctrine that is often misunderstood today, often misunderstood, especially in many Reformed circles. They and Calvinist and lordship circles, they they miss the boat a little bit on understanding regeneration. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to reflect upon what it says, to come to understand how you exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, we're just reminded so much that the word of God is not about us, but it's about you, and it's about teaching us who you are and how we are to respond to you in our lives. But to respond to you means most of all that we need to know you and understand you, which only comes through a study of your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we study today, that we may walk more consistently by God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.